Welcome to Health Law Talk, presented by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. Health law broken down through expert discussion, real client issues, and real life experiences. Breaking barriers to understanding complex healthcare issues is our job. And good morning, everyone. This is uh, another edition of Health Law Talk here at the uh, Shahardi Sherman Law Firm. Uh, Conrad Meyer, Rory Bellina, two uh, well-versed healthcare attorneys here. And uh, also today, a special guest in the studio, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Hi, doctor. Good morning, Conrad. How are you? Good it's morning, good. Rory. Good morning. Good to have you in. And and I think today is it's a special day that you're here. We, we really thank you for coming into the studio My with pleasure. us this morning. Um, and we thought today would be uh, all, about, all about you and sort of figuring out who, what is, what, what sort of doctor are you? What's going on in your personal private practice, and uh, and a little bit more about your advocacy background. So, absolutely. So, so to start off with, give us, give the listeners an idea. You know, what is? You said you, you told me earlier you're you're a pediatric food allergist and adult and adult and adult. So <laughs> correct me, thank you. Yes. So tell me a little bit about your practice and your background. Absolutely. And, and so the listeners can know. So I am a Louisiana girl, born and raised in South Louisiana, um, and I'm a board-certified allergist immunologist, also board-certified in internal medicine and in pediatrics, and I focus my clinical practice on food allergy. Um, I've been doing this for years now. Uh, prior to opening my practice here in Metairie, I was at the Cleveland Clinic, and prior to that, I was at Vanderbilt University, so have have really been blessed to work at amazing, amazing um, institutions and was just so excited to come back down to my home state, very close to my hometown, and open up a practice where I felt I could best serve patients. That's great. I mean, uh, you got some good background. I mean, Cleveland Clinic, I mean, very well recognized mm-hmm. uh, background. And, and so when you talk about food allergy, I mean, I remember growing up, I mean, and I even asked you this question, I remember growing up, nobody did when I was my age talked about food allergy. You know, and I'm 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 not young anymore, but I don't remember you know everyone freaking out or saying no we can't cook this or can't bring that ever. So so no, tell me they, how, how did this develop? Well, it wasn't talked about then because it wasn't being diagnosed then is one thing, uh, but okay. also it it was not occurring then. I mean, anaphylaxis meaning an immediate onset of high swelling, trouble breathing, vomiting that's anaphylaxis. Mm-hmm. Um, that's hard to miss. And so I don't think that it's, we just were missing the diagnosis. It is that it was not happening as much and it is happening much, much more now. Why? We don't know. We don't know why more and more, especially children are developing food allergies. That's interesting because I, I, I know I used to think to myself, is this just helicopter parents? Is this just over anxious children or even adults? I mean, do we, is there something wrong or there, is there really such a thing as a food allergy? There, there absolutely is. Um, and I do remember our, our journey on this road, Conrad, because you've been helping my nonprofit organization for years now. And um, it's been interesting. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I think it's been interesting to watch your um, your level of knowledge and specifically regarding food allergy and policy that really grow and expand. And I remember one day I was on the phone with you and you're like, 
what? Like, this is really happening about, it was something about stock epinephrine, which I know we'll get to. Right. Um, but it, it's just, yes, it, it is happening more and more. Um, what is interesting is called the hygiene hypothesis. And, and that's the whole concept that we're all mm-hmm. too, too hygienic sure. now. Um, and what's interesting about food allergy is that the, the allergic antibodies uh, that participate in allergic reactions, they're also used to help keep us safe from parasite infections. Mm -hmm. I say that because in third world countries where they don't really have food allergy, but they have parasite infections, it's sort of the same immune mechanisms that are associated with food allergy. Whereas here, we don't really have parasite infections. We have plenty of food allergy. So just food for thought. So what, what, I mean, I I guess the most common one that, that, I mean, you and I have even discussed it, peanuts. Mm -hmm. Is that, would you Mm -hmm. say that that is probably the most common Food allergy, or do you think maybe a top three? I don't know, top three? I don't know. So now we have a top nine. You have top nine. Top nine. Wow. Wow. Sesame, sesame seed is really coming in there with a strong... A sesame strong, seed. Oh, yes. Wait, oh, wait, yes. Like raw sesame or like roasted sesame? Or does it matter? Excellent question. Studies have shown that in peanuts in particular, and that was done at work here, Sohaila Malachi, that roasting peanuts actually makes them more allergenic. We think it has to do with the way the the sugars and the proteins um, become break down, and, and then they, they, the oils come out when you roast it. I mean, is it so? It, it's called a Maillard effect. It's that nice toast, like when you put toasts in, you put bread in, in the in the toaster. It makes toast. It's nice and brown and warm and like yummy smelling. I like that's that. called the Maillard effect, and something about that makes the protein more allergenic. Um, clinical pearl number one here. What you're allergic to, if you're allergic to a food, is actually the protein. So foods are foods are made of carbohydrate, right. protein, fat, right. or alcohol. Right. The allergen is a protein. And so clinical pearl number two, Conrad, you mentioned oils. Most people who have a food allergy, they can actually eat at Chick-fil-A that fries in highly refined peanut oil because highly refined peanut oil is highly refined, meaning there's no peanut protein in it. It's just oil. And oil is not the allergen. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I had no... I really had no idea. Did you know that, Rory? I did not. No, and and I want to get back to to the peanut part because I was just having this conversation with another parent the other day at at our kid's school, and and the topic of it's a peanut free school and the peanut allergies. Uh, that topic was what we were discussing. What's your kind of? Can you go through what's the history of that? Because I, I honestly didn't know. And when I when I talked to it with with older people or my parents or my in laws. You know, they'll say, oh, well, we didn't have that. Kids ate peanuts. They were they were fine. But like you mentioned, there seems to have been this big shift to where, you know, now most schools, I think, are, are peanut-free. Kind of where did that come from and kind of what are your thoughts on, on that? Because yeah. I'm curious about that just on a personal basis. Absolutely. So first, let me clarify for our audience the top nine food allergens. Peanut, tree nuts, egg, milk, wheat, soy, thin fish, uh, crustacean shellfish, and now sesame seed. So in 2023, you're going to begin seeing sesame seed on your nutrition labels if it's an allergen, Mm -hmm. highlighting that it's an allergen. Um, Regarding peanut-free schools, that is a very, very hot-button issue. And the Journal of Allergy Clinical Immunology published an article at the end of 2021, and my colleague and I actually wrote a response to the article, and that was also published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. And it was all about food allergy reaction prevention and management in schools and early learning centers. They reviewed all of the evidence that we have from 
how to manage food allergy effectively in schools and in early learning centers like daycares, preschools. And all of their recommendations, they ended up all being conditional recommendations for a few reasons, meaning we don't have a whole lot of evidence as to whether or not to make this particular policy regarding food allergy in school. Um, And the evidence we do have is all kind of like, not great. So our response to the article was like, this is a fantastic article. But one thing that they really didn't highlight was the importance of having an allergist, a board certified allergist involved with schools to help schools make evidence-based informed policies that meet the school's culture. So for a preschool, you're going to have different policies in place regarding food than you would for a high school. Right. But if you're trying to take a a sort of a cookie cutter approach of, well, we all have to do this, um, fill in the blank XYZ policy, that is not, um, you're doing a disservice really to the students as well. And and that's what I've seen. And we were discussing the conversation I was having with the other parent was that it's a archdiocese policy or whatever district you're in it's, it's just their policy so you know instead of going on a school by school basis i think they just made it a, a blanket policy for for all other schools and it, it might may or may not affect the individual schools but but now every child in the whole district i whatever it is it, it affects them i, 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 I want to know one thing i mean i want to know how, how many how many the art whether it's the archdiocese here in new orleans or the schools themselves how many of them have a board certified allergist actually advising them i would fair i, I would fair to say none i mean honestly i mean I, I don't i don't see that happening i mean in your in your practice uh dr hoyt when you meet with schools or you talk to the administrators do you find that it's more non-clinical people who are making these policies? Do they even get the advice of physicians? And if they do get the advice of physicians, is, are they really physicians that should be giving that advice? That, that's an excellent point. Um, and Roy, let me go back to your question too about Lots the answer. Lots of questions here. Because <laughs> um, I, I didn't answer your question about the thought of um, peanut-free schools. There's actually not evidence that peanut-free schools actually prevent allergic reactions. Um, It's sort of a false sense of security, to be quite honest. Um, But what there is a little bit of evidence for, maybe, is if you have targeted allergy zones that are very much age-appropriate. And that comes back to my point about having policies that are um, appropriate for a child's age. Pre-K is going to be different than a high school. So should schools be peanut free. We don't have evidence that says that that's helpful. Um, and is it harmful if they are peanut free? Is there any harm to not exposing your kids to? I mean, my, I think what's happened to me personally. I have three kids all at the same school, and they can't have peanuts at all in the school. So, and and they typically don't choose to eat it on the weekend. So essentially, they're not eating peanuts or they're not eating certain types of food. Are there any harms e- to that? You can't even like from the school standpoint, and at least in my kids' school. You can't even bring stuff to school that was baked, cooked, put together, where there was peanuts even around. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I know at the beginning that, of the year, I, mean, I think most of us get that that form of, you know, check your labels, and if it's in a factory where peanuts were mixed. I mean, can't, it's, can't bring it. Yeah, it's, I mean, are there, what are the harms to that? I see you're smiling. No so one can see so that. It's so interesting but. that you're bringing up, like, made in a factory. There's very limited... Um, they're very specific regulations regarding how to label foods and regarding um, allergens. Uh, foods need to, food allergens need to be labeled one of two ways. The allergen needs to be highlighted within the um, ingredients list or right below that where it says it will say contains and it'll list 
one of the alert if if the peanut if peanuts in there it'll list peanuts so that that makes it easier for us to see what's actually in the food label um, or the nutrition facts label um, but all these other things like made in a factory or whatever like none of that's regulated that's all whatever a company wants to put on their label to uh, you know I mean cover their behinds now are there any downfalls to not exposing kids to peanuts are essentially uh, that like, again goes back to my thing my kids don't eat peanuts because uh, they're not eating at school and they so they don't we don't they don't request a peanut butter and jelly on the weekends so they're really not getting it i guess are there any we're limiting that so if they grow up and you know hopefully go off to college and they eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich you know what what are the effects of, of something like that of not being exposed to a certain food or ingredient or, or allergen mm-hmm. protein as you mm-hmm. mentioned for essentially until most, I think most high schools have the prohibition as well. And then you go off to college and you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Are there any? So we know that exposure develops tolerance. And what that means is that your immune system will see a food and recognize it as like, okay, this is fine. This is totally cool. Um, Clinical pearl number three, do not order food allergy testing online because it's just gonna be silly IgG testing, which is not allergic antibody testing. IgG is an antibody that simply says that your body's been exposed to something. It, it doesn't necessarily say much more than that. It doesn't say much more than that regarding food allergy. Um, so the concept of having children avoid foods, we know that that can promote the development of allergy or what I really should say, the loss of tolerance. Okay. Okay. So if when they do have that peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if they would have had a reaction at three, four, five, and and maybe would have, you know, had to come see you or need some sort of treatment or Mm -hmm. or some sort of, you know, protocol, when they have it now at 16, 17, 18, they could have a much bigger reaction or response to it. That we we do know that our teenagers, our adolescents, our young 20s, they are at risk um, for worse outcomes. And there are a few different reasons for that. One, some people say that, oh, well, they, they have worse decision-making skills, um, risky behaviors. Um, also, clinical poll, I don't know, number four, alcohol will actually lower your threshold to have an allergic reaction. Um, so that's something that's really important to talk to your, your college-age kids about who have food allergy is, you know, if you're at a party and you're drinking and you're, you're decision-making is being further impaired, then you're at risk of accidentally ingestion, ingesting your allergen. And then because you're ingesting it with alcohol, you could potentially have a worse reaction or more likely to have a reaction. Um, also, if you look at the immune system of an adolescent, I mean, there's a reason like going back into biblical times that those are the people that were fighting and they think they're invincible, right? And their immune system does too. The immune system is a boss at that at that time of life. And unfortunately, what's happening when someone's having anaphylaxis is that their immune system is going rogue. It's seeing something and it is attacking it, thinking that it is, it is trying to to fight this bad guy, basically, but it really is the immune system going rogue. And so that is why another reason that I do think that, or that is a risk factor that I like to consider when I'm thinking about um, risk for our adolescents and our young 20s kids. Now, the concept of you avoid a food, you're at risk of developing a food allergy, and I'll come back to that, um, and then is your reaction going to be worse later on? We think it would it could be worse just because you're you're no longer a little kid with a immature immune system. You're an adolescent with that boss immune system that I talked about. So I'm sure it's hard to make a recommendation 
a broad recommendation. It, it's probably more case by case or child by child specific. But what's your kind of general rule? You know, should children should should you allow your children to eat these when they're home or you know, kind of under your supervision? Should you you know encourage them to eat? the allergens, like you said, the crustaceans or the mm-hmm. peanuts, you know. No, I can try. absolutely make very strong recommendations. Okay, that's what I want. <laughs> absolutely. So we do know based on evidence, based on studies, that children um, under the age of one who have egg allergy and or severe eczema, they are at risk of developing peanut allergy. So there are some risk factors to developing a food allergy. How you know a four-month-old has an egg allergy we, we, could, we could get into the details of the recommendations, but the recommendations are very good because of, or of, of the guidelines and of the evidence because they do help us identify children who are at risk of developing a food allergy. I had a, a kiddo the other day who had never had peanut before, is a baby, has some pretty rough eczema. Um, mom was concerned about a different food. I was concerned about peanut because I knew that having severe eczema puts a child at risk of having peanut allergy. Um, Did the blood work and very, very strongly suggests um, peanut allergy. So if you listen to my podcast, then you'll hear, oh, Dr. Hoyt, you always say you have to do a food challenge to really confirm they're allergic and, and don't just go on the blood work. That is very true. However, we are getting better and better with our testing and allergy testing in the hands of a skilled board certified allergist can be very, very helpful for your child. Um, And so we know there are a few very specific tests that we can order to help us determine whether or not we think your kiddo actually is allergic specifically to peanut so that then we can make an informed recommendation such as avoid peanut and also consider what's called oral immunotherapy, which is when we teach the immune system to grow that tolerance. So, so let me ask you this. So you, you mentioned this just a moment ago about what you do, what the plan is. And, and, and I'd like to, to, get, to segue into that. So you recently opened up a new practice in, in Old Metairie, in Metairie. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Can you tell us and, and the listeners about your practice and, and, and the name of it and, and how that came to be and, and go into a little bit. I'd like you to, to tell everyone why is it that your practice is is different absolutely um so the name of the practice is hoyt institute of food allergy and we provide evidence-based family-focused information about food allergy to our families um why i think we're different is because of the people who work at our institute not so much including me i what I do is I provide you the most up-to-date, evidence-based approach to understanding what's going on with your child's food allergy, making a, a, making a diagnosis. So many people are walking around with a misdiagnosis. So I clarify the diagnosis, what food you really are allergic to. So many people think they're allergic to all tree nuts. Most people are not allergic to all tree nuts. In fact, a lot of things that are labeled tree nuts are not even technically tree nuts. Again, I could go on a tangent about that, Rory. But... I will get you a diagnosis and then provide you a treatment plan. Typically, the treatment plan for a food allergy is to avoid the food. That's always a great plan, but we can also do what's called oral immunotherapy, which is when we teach the immune system to tolerate the food. Um, But, I mean, other allergists can do that, and they do it, and they do it very well. Many of them do. But what's really unique about my practice is that I have on board an 
excellent, excellent, excellent therapist who helps our families identify stressors, um, provide strategies for overcoming those stressors. Because food allergy, it's it, it's a 24-7. It's a 24-7 problem um, where you're sending your kiddo to school. And in addition to all the other things you worry about when you send your child to school, you're worried that they're not going to come home because they accidentally ingested their allergen, right? I mean, like, my child does not have food allergy, thank the Lord. And I, I just, I, I worry about so many things with her. I can't imagine having to worry about that too. Right. Um, and so having Melissa on board, she is, she's just fantastic. And I mean, she helps with things like bath time, making that less stressful so that your oral immunotherapy dosing, you're less likely to just all of these things. Um, and so be- Melissa, she's, she is a licensed social mm-hmm. worker therapist mm-hmm. that works. So you have a multidisciplinary team yes. and you take this multidisciplinary approach, um, uh, that, that I, I don't think. It, I've seen any other allergist do that before. So so th- no. th- that's very, very unique. And so she she walks with, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, she works with you to sort of, you do the clinical aspect on the allergy mm-hmm. side and she manages the therapy side for the families. Right, because I could be recommending a treatment plan, but right. if that treatment plan has particular stressors in it for the family, we're not going to have success. And so I need that other component, that social emotional support component Mm -hmm. to help the family have the outcome achieve the goals that the family wants to achieve the other person i have to mention is alexis who's our comprehensive care navigator i don't know if y'all have ever tried to call your doctor but it it can be very difficult to get in touch with your physician at hoyt institute when you make that phone call you are talking to alexis alexis is our care navigator she and i are in constant communication i'm shocked she hasn't texted me um, during this podcast but she will help with your whole experience making sure we get records if in all of that like when people call us, we we take you in as part of our family. And I'd love to know more, more a little bit more about your practice as well, because I'm, I'm thinking of it for personal reasons for one of my children. But, you know, typically, who are the patients that, that come to see you? What are the issues that they come and they say, Dr. Hoyt, here's what's been going on? And, and kind of what's that, that patient population for you look like? A lot of it is younger families who have children who are, are younger age, who have food allergies. They've been told like, oh, well, there's there's nothing really to do. You just have to avoid the food. Yet they go online and read reputable resources and find, oh, well, what's this thing called oral immunotherapy? And, and why can't my child do that? And, um, and that's what I do. That's what I specialize in. Um, when I was at Cleveland Clinic, I helped build the Food Allergy Center of Excellence up there. And so this is what I do. Um, it, it's hard if, if you're a board certified allergist who also does all these other very important disease processes to also do the type of food allergy management, this very detailed type of practice that I described, mm-hmm. um, that I think is really important for a family to, to have the comprehensive experience and care that they need. And so it's a lot of younger families who, who want to do something about their child's food allergy. We also have some kids who, who are about to go off to college and their families are, are kind of like, you know what, we're, we're concerned because we, we do hear these, these stories. We work with a group in Ohio whose daughter passed away at college of anaphylaxis. Um, and, and so it's really families who are informed, food allergy families are so informed. They're informed, they know 
they know there's potentially a treatment out there for their child and they want to know more about it. Okay. And when, when these families come in, is it, it's typically a sit down conversation and then, you know, or where do things go from there from, from testing or can you kind of go into what happens after that or during that initial consult? Yeah. So my initial consultation is actually two parts. And so when you call a scheduled appointment, Alexis is going to schedule you for the first day and then a week or two later, the, the follow up to it. Um, the most important thing is I sit down and talk with you. I sit down and talk with you. Alexis is right there with me. She does, um, helps a lot with documentation so that I'm not, I mean, who likes to be sitting there talking to their doctor and their doctor's literally like typing it into a computer. I hate that. And so I don't do that. I sit down and I talk to my patients. That's also where I'm able to, to, to see their cues. And, and I can see when a mom is stressed about something and a dad is, or a dad is stressed about something and the dynamic that's going on there, because all of that goes into how successful could or immunotherapy be or what is really going on what is that anxiety level because then I'll talk to Melissa about it Melissa will pick up on that so that we can really help the family but we do the initial discussion what what has happened with your child what symptoms how long after all all of the clinical questions I'll do skin testing um, if that hasn't already been done a lot of allergists are referring their patients to me um, and so if, if we need to do skin testing, we'll do that. If I need to order specialized blood testing, which many times I do, then we'll order that at that visit. And that's why they come back a couple weeks later so that we have, we have all of the information then when they come back to make a decision about what do I really think is going on? Do we need to do an ingestion challenge, meaning your, you and your kiddo will come back and we'll do incrementally increasing amounts of the food to determine whether or not we think you're allergic, um, depending on what your testing is and what your history shows, or do we need to decide on the avoidance pathway or the oral immunotherapy pathway? Okay. I mean, no, I mean, that, that sounds great. I was, I was curious, you know, kind of where that, that trans transgression went. Um, as far as your practice, I know we want to jump over into uh, your nonprofit and everything on on that side. As far as your practice goes, um, are you taking insurance? Are you private pay? Kind of because I know our listeners, especially the local ones, are going to have questions about that. You know, how are you set up for that? So we're direct pay. Okay. We uh, we will help families submit uh, a, what's called a super bill, which is a horrible name, um, but we'll provide itemized overview of, of sure. services and fees. But ultimately, I answer to my patients. Sure. If I'm getting paid by an insurance company, and this is just my own personal approach to it, and not all physicians can can practice this way, but I set up Hoyt Institute, so I'm going to practice the way I feel that I, I am called to practice. Um, I am going to answer to the family. So it's the family who, at the end of the day, is going to be writing the check to the institute. Sure. And I think Conrad and I are, are starting to see that. I know we, one of our more well, recent podcasts was right. direct pay, primary care. Shifting to that model. Yeah. And it seems it's so exciting and impressive. And, you know, as the as the cost of insurance just continues to, to skyrocket, you know, just on your, your premiums and then your deductibles are even higher in copays. I mean, it, it's really becoming a question of is it, is it, absent a, a car accident or, or traumatic type of surgery that we need. Do, do we really need these huge insurance policies or, you know, I think a lot of people are opting to, to go this route. Well, I think, I mean, look at the difference. I mean, how many times have, have we witnessed in, in our practice where we walked in and the doctor's got the kiosk there and he's not even looking at you. Oh, he's, yeah, just he's, like, he's just typing, typing in directly. He or she. 
right directly and, into Epic as you're talking because he's not going to get paid for documentation. Yeah, right. So I mean, to, to be able to spend time with your patients, Doctor Hoyt, and and listen, absolutely worth it. I mean, I mean, I mean, I tell you this. You know, my I give my my own family. My mother and my father went to MDVIP recently, um, and my mother was just like, I never knew healthcare was like this. I mean, I mean, this tells you. That, that when they sit down with their doctor, just like you're doing, Dr. Hoyt, and spending the time with your patients and listening and talking, I mean, this is why you got the medicine. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I mean, this is, this is why you did this, you know. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. And, and so, you know, let me ask you this. I know you recently started. Mm-hmm. How has been, uh, how has the reaction been? Tell me, tell me, I mean, I know when you, when you open your doors, it's kind of like, okay, if we build it, will they come? <laughs> right, right. Have they come? Yes. So yes. let's talk about that. Yeah, so. and I'd love to hear, like you mentioned, exactly to segue on Conrad's question. Right. Have they come, and how do they? How have they reacted to this payment model? Because it's it's not well, new, no, but pay, it's, it's somewhat model, new. But also the, the the approach you're doing because that's different. Mm-hmm. The approach you're doing is different. The payment model is different. Um, your your marketing and everything you're doing is different. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious. Now we're. Now we're kind of getting into Q, you know, halfway the Q1, Q2, 2022. Mm-hmm. How's it been? It's been great. Um, we're a lot of word of mouth um, from pediatricians and from aller- my allergy colleagues, which has been really awesome. Um, and I ask Alexis that all the time because Alexis is the one that talks through the payment plans and all of that stuff with, with right. the families um, so that I don't have to be be so directly a part of that. I think it just makes it more comfortable for so, everybody. Well, but break it down for me. And so so how do you, how are your pay, first off you're getting patients obviously. Yes. I mean you're doing you're, the doors open, people are yes. coming in and and it's expanding exponentially. Mm-hmm. Well, how do the how do the patients feel both on the issue of your payment model and then on the multidisciplinary approach? Um, the, the latter is very easy to answer. They they seem very happy. I'll I'll ask them all the time. Um, what do you think about Melissa? What do you think about Alexis? How is this going? They're like, we, we love them. We love them. And Alexis has, has so much sort of like FaceTime with them regarding texting because they can, they can text her. They have a question about an appointment. They just text her and they get their response. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's new in itself. You know, that's right. Um, How often do you get that? I, I don't, and, unless they're a client, unless I'm not getting client, their cell phone. Right. <laughs> they don't respond if you, you know, unless you're. No, and so um, <laughs> regarding the payment, I always, I always ask Alexis. You know, has there been any any pushback? And it sounds like there there hasn't been much pushback. I mean, we're staying pretty busy. Um, we get paid, and my patients seem happy. And I always so you, provide you, my information and. You Nobody set, abuses it. Well, right. I mean, well, you set this I up. I probably call and bother them more than. Well, you know, <laughs> what I'm saying is, you, you, you've set this. Up. I don't mean to interrupt you, but you, 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 you set this up, and basically, you've created your own concierge practice without the need for any service, without the need for any kind of overlay from another company. You've done it, boots on the ground, grassroots, and it's working. Yes, and you know exactly how boots on the ground I've done it because you helped me with <laughs> with um, how many EMRs did we look at, Conrad? We, we looked at quite a few. And ultimately, <laughs> I did not go with any of them. That's exactly right. Um, but, but no, I mean, it, it's been an amazing experience. We do, um, you know, I really have a commitment that any child that walks through our door that needs our help, we're going to help them. Right. So however we need to make that happen, we're going to make that happen. Interesting. Um, 
there's just there's so much we can do regarding food allergy. Well, let's, it's, it's just time. Let's for us pivot to, to do that. that. Yeah. Now, now let's go to the advocacy part. So okay, can you good. tell can you tell the listeners a little bit about Dr. Hoyt, the advocate? Yeah. So um, I've always been interested in helping schools, help, helping kids who who need extra help. I came from a family that um, I was very blessed to have an my amazing parents. Um, they're one of the reasons I moved back, you know? Um, and, uh, just to always be told, get your education and just, I, I have been so blessed. And so I've always wanted to, to give back to others who have not had that, um, especially children, especially children. And even when I was here in med school, I was a Schweitzer fellow and I, I did my fellowship teaching a nutrition class to Langston Hughes K through three students. Um, so it's always been something working with schools has always been a passion of mine. When I was in allergy fellowship, I recognized that schools are not prepared for medical emergencies and having done internal medicine and pediatrics, I ran way too many codes and I knew just how effective having closed loop communication, assigned roles when you're responding to a medical emergency, how effective that is. But schools didn't have a way to know any of that, right? So we started Code Anna. Code Anna equips schools to be prepared for medical emergencies like anaphylaxis. Um, one of the biggest things we do is really we really help schools obtain epinephrine auto injectors, um, know how to use them. That's a big thing. You can have a tool, but if you know how to use it, then that's no good. Um, but then also the, the bigger underlying thing is help them develop and implement their own medical emergency response plan and team. So I'm going to ask a question that I, I already know the answer to, but I, our listeners may not. So, and, and I'm sure this, this also might vary um, on a state-by-state basis, but what's the current kind of procedure for a school if they – want to have, and I, I, I'm thinking of my school in particular, um, the, the policy is if they're going to hold and potentially use the injector, you have to have a doctor's note, you have to provide it, it can't be expired, only X, Y, and Z people can do it. Th- that's kind of it. But what is the, the general policy if a school just wants to have them on hand for a kid that doesn't know that they're going to have a reaction? Mm-hmm. Kind of what, what's the, and, and I'm sure that there's, you know, there's obviously liabilities involved with that, but kind of can you go through What's the state right now for schools that, that want to have these injectors or that are considering it but might not know what the policy is? Absolutely. Um, so what you're describing is called stock epinephrine. Stock epinephrine is epinephrine typically in the form of an auto injector that's prescribed to an entity, whether it be a school, a business. It's prescribed to that entity to be used during an anaphylactic emergency, whether somebody has a known diagnosis and doesn't have their auto injector or they're one of the kids who has their first reaction at school. That is stock epinephrine. That is different regarding legislation and regulations than epinephrine that's prescribed to a student. Um, and so we can we can talk about that later. Sure. Regarding stock epinephrine, there is the the heterogeneity of stock epinephrine legislation in this country is amazing. 49 states have stock epi legislation. Hawaii does not, meaning they do not have protection for a school or non-school entity to have their own epinephrine auto injector. And you you made a very interesting comment. You you commented on liability. And so many times schools that do not have stock epi, um, they are concerned about liability. But I think when we do this podcast in 10 years, maybe even five years, it will be perceived as more of a liability to not 
have stock epinephrine. Right. I'm sure there's, there's liability on both sides of having it and injecting it wrong or injecting it to a child that wasn't having a reaction or not having it and, and something terrible goes wrong. So I think, like you mentioned, there's there's liability on both sides. But let's take Louisiana, for example, because I think mm-hmm. I think most of our listeners are, are here. Um, you know, what's the, the policy for a school or a business if uh, school is probably the, the best example, but if a school or a business, if they if they want to have this on hand, is it similar to kind of the process of an AED where you just get it and get a little bit of training and if you need to use it, use it? Or is it is it totally different? Every state is different. Here in Louisiana, we have stock epi legislation for K through 12 schools. It is permitted. It is not mandated. When we look at the 49 states that have stock epi legislation, some of them, those 49 states mandate that schools have stock epinephrine. They do not always fund the mandate, um, which can leave schools in a lurch, or it's written in the law that it's mandated pending there is funding, and that if there's not funding, then it is permitted but not required. Meaning the cost of the actual drug training the auto ejector all of that right all of that right typically in the legislation it is written how somebody becomes trained and permitted to use the device and in all of the legislation that i have seen anyone who is trained as described by however the legislation describes it if they are trained and they recognize somebody or they suspect somebody in good faith is having an allergic reaction then they are indemnified against okay Yes. So like a good Samaritan provision. Yes. And, and, but here's the sad thing. Some states don't have that. So there's obviously hesitancy to use it in those states. If 49 states have stock epi legislation permitting the acquisition and use of stock epi in schools. Okay. Some of them are mandated, meaning they have to have it. Sure. Some school, some states, they don't have to have it. It's permitted. But that is just K through 12 schools. Is there, now let me ask you this. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but, 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 but are there good Samaritan laws directly attributable to stock epi use in the 49 states? That would be, yes, that would be within the actual stock epi legislation is where you find that okay, identification so, so, language. So they do have that. So, so mm-hmm. there isn't, and so in 49, okay, well, I did not know that. I thought, I thought there was states that might not have it. So, so even if, so all 49 states that have it also have identification. So there's really, so there's really no reason why schools shouldn't take advantage of this. True. Right. Well, okay. Interesting. Well, it comes down to a cost factor. Cost factor. Obviously, cost do they, they want to have? Uh, how much is a stock EpiPen? I don't even know. Um, depending on the device that you're procuring, I know for a fact that AviQ um, is available for two hundred forty-six dollars and ninety-nine cents through one of their distribution companies. Okay. I mean, that's. I mean, I think. I mean, if, if I'm a parent, right? You want your school to have it. I want my school to have it, just right. like I want the AED, just like I Correct. want. Correct. I want them to have the tools, right, right, to be able to respond, not just for my child, but for any child. I mean, I, I think all of us sitting here in the studio would be devastated sure. if you're, you know, one of your class, one of your child's classmates didn't have something available. That was two hundred dollars. That was two hundred dollars, right? Now, some people, oh, that's a lot of money. Well, I mean, you know what? When you think about it, you know, it, is it is it worth that over some child sure. having some severe injury or sure. death? I was speaking with um, a state trooper with this uh, safe schools program the other day, and we were they they focus on the intruder alert part of it and that that aspect of safety and having medical emergency or having emergency response um, protocols. But we both agree the least likely thing to occur in a school when you're comparing intruder, tornado, um, hurricane, and um, emergency and fire 
there hasn't been a fire in a school for decades, decades. Is it still very important we have fire drills? Absolutely. Is it important to have fire extinguishers? Yes, of course. But how many times is somebody having sudden cardiac arrest on a school campus, right. whether it's a student or somebody coming in for Grandparents' Day or an athlete at a tournament? Um, and how many of these kids have, or kids not just any child, have a food allergy? Or um, they're one of the younger kids who hasn't had their initial reaction yet, and so they don't even know they have a food allergy. They have a reaction. They don't have a, a device at school, and that's why... As this legislation continues to, to take through the country, I do think that five, ten years from now, it's going to be looked at as a liability to not embrace this type of preparedness. So let's talk about that five or ten years from now. Okay, Code Anna, you mentioned that uh, that program, mm-hmm. and and you know we're both very familiar with that. Yes. Uh, so where what kind of market penetration right now does Code Anna have? In the United States, where, where is Codana now involved? We're across the country. We have education specifically for early learning centers, and we're doing a new train the trainer model where we're actually teaching childcare health consultants how they can teach about food allergy in their early learning centers, daycares, preschools, and that's across the country. We have a very strong presence in New York, especially New York City, um, where our early um, childhood education for anaphylaxis stock stock epinephrine in particular is very popular and then also in the state of ohio where i just came from we work very closely with the allison rose foundation um the young lady that i mentioned passed away at college her parents started the allison rose foundation in her memory and we have a course going live across the state next month that is going to be accessible for school staff to take they get continuing education credit for it and it's no cost to them so how many, how many, I know we, we've, we've gotten approved in other states too, meaning Codana. So how many states has Codana been approved as an official training program? So what you're talking about is our stock epinephrine legis- or our stock epinephrine program being approved. Um, states are tremendously different whether they even have an approval process. Right. So as we're going state by state, we've been very successful in the ones we've applied in, which so far is 12. Um, many of the, oh, I think 13, we just got through to another one um, because all the legislation is very different regarding how does training occur. And so is this, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we're talking, I'm sorry, Rory. So, cause I like this, this is very, I'm very excited about this. I'm very passionate about it. So in five years, five years, you just said 13 states. Where do you predict Codana will be in five years? In, in all the states. You, so you, you, the goal is for you five oh, years, yeah. all no, 50 states. No, we're actively working on it right now. And how we, we wrote the paper, the heterogeneity of stock epi legislation that was published in Jackie in Practice, first author Maddie Oxford, my mentee in Pennsylvania, um, was because we were applying to get our epi program approved. It's And, and the states don't always know, know how to do it. Sure, and, right. But we found all that out because we're literally going state by state Finding is it Department of Public Health, it's Department of Education, and, and all. But the it's not are just different. that, though. I'm sorry, it's not just that. It's what about the response, the, the response plan? Isn't do y'all just do? How does that fit in? I mean, the emergency response plan. I know you told me in the mm-hmm. past about that. What is it? How does Codana help? So you're talking about our MediReady program. Right. MediReady is a logistics program that teaches, and it can be done online. It's free of charge. Go to codana.org. It teaches schools how they can develop and implement their own medical emergency response plan, including a team 
for their school. They build upon their intruder alert, their fire drill. They build upon the protocols they already have in place, make a few adaptations using their crisis response team that most schools already have, and they practice having a medical emergency so that when, not if, when a medical emergency happens, they have a core group of adults responding quite promptly to that emergency with the tools they need and they know how to use those tools. So if a school or a a private business, maybe we'll get out of the public sector for a second, but if a school or a private business is interested in having stock epi, like you mentioned, is that something that they could reach out to your nonprofit to find out about how to order it, how to get trained on it, how to Mm -hmm. kind of make themselves available to the the protections and the, and the, the good Samaritan or the indemnification things. Is that something that they could reach out to you to navigate? Yes, absolutely. And I'll point out that not all states have stock epi legislation for what we call non-school entities, meaning for for businesses, for universities, for early learning centers. So here in Louisiana, we're actually working on some legislation to have that type of indemnification legislation so that any entity, especially our early learning centers, can have stock epi if they want it. Interesting. I mean, I've watched this grow over the years. This is really, uh, I got to say, Conana and and what you're doing is monumental for, I mean, I can't even tell you how many families you probably touched. You never know. I mean, if it helps prevent one death Mm -hmm. or one severe injury, Mm -hmm. you've succeeded. It's nice to get the emails from the school nurses, from the school principals saying, "We, we did a drill or we had an actual emergency. And we got to the child in 52 seconds. Um, or the emails about a, a Cody and a trainee use stock epinephrine on a child, and the child's doing great. Like, it, it's incredibly rewarding. But it, to your point, it's, it's incredibly important work, and it needs, to be, it needs to be in all schools. So your nonprofit is able to go in, I think you mentioned before we started recording, to go into a school and, and kind of sit down with the faculty or if they have a nurse or whoever it may be, sit down with them and and kind of say, here are the signs and symptoms and here's how to administer. Here's what you need to do after administration, kind of everything from A to Z. Absolutely. We first start with an assessment to really understand where the school starting point is. And from there, we work with the schools to identify their goals and then provide education and guidance on how to achieve their goals regarding medical emergency preparedness. But it's not just schools, though. You said businesses, too. So we haven't done MediReady for businesses, but if if businesses want stock epinephrine, if businesses have questions about AEDs um, for sudden cardiac arrest, those are things we absolutely can You know where with. I see this, Rory? Airline. In the plane. I mean, how many stewardess or stewards would you know know how to respond to an anaphylaxis situation? It's a very interesting um discussion we we should I mean, dive a, down a, that rabbit hole AED, aeds is one thing because i mean you, you know the aeds you, know, you put this put the paddle here you put it here and you press the button right so but i mean imagine all the peanuts and crackers and all whatever that are served on planes i mean i can't imagine you know that that would be an interesting situation mm-hmm. i would think so know? dr hoyt where do you see the biggest need is for that's a great more question. of the the stock epi is it is it schools is that where you kind of is that like the big the big fish that you want to kind of encapsulate to get your dream goal is to have every school across the the country i'm sure have this stock is that is that kind of what the schools and early learning centers okay Okay. because that is where students might not have their own devices um that is where um students might not yet 
have manifested their disease process yet. And it, it's not just having the actual device there that is incredibly important and teaching people how to use it, but it's also the secondary benefits that our society as a whole really gains from sort of demystifying food allergy and and having everybody on the same page that yes, food allergy is real, yes, food allergy is life-threatening, and yes, epinephrine is the way you treat it. Interesting, interesting. Well, I think I think we could go on and on on Codana. We could go on and about food allergies, uh, but I, I want to think. I think it's time that we try to wrap this up because I think uh, I want to continue to have you on for more episodes. I mean, I well, think I think we're going to have to, you know, do like a part series, right? Because I honestly think that this is a real thing. I, 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 she, you know, Doctor Hoyt has corrected me over the years. I've I've watched this happen. And where before I was sort of, uh, oh, is this just a, you know, helicopter parents and all this? And, oh, come on. It's, I mean, I ate peanut butter and jelly as a kid. I mean, I had all over my face. Nothing would happen. Right. But no, I mean, now I genuinely recognize it. I see it in other parents. I see it in kids. So uh, I got to tell you, Dr. Hoyt, I mean, both private practice, family, and advocate on a nonprofit, you got, you got yourself pretty busy there. I, yes. True, true statement. <laughs> so if someone, and, and to, to kind of wrap this up, if someone wants to contact you for personal reasons, you know, for their child, like you mentioned, their clinic, or if they're involved with a school or a business that wants more information about yes. your uh, the, the Stock Epi program, what's the best way for them to reach you? So they can go to HoytAllergy.com, and that's going to go to my practice. The number on there is the number you call and you're going to get Alexis. She's going to answer the phone. Um, and then if you want more information about our advocacy, codeana.org, C-O-D-E-A-N-A, one A, like anaphylaxis.org. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Hoyt, for coming in the studio today. This has been fantastic, a very uh, educational, uh, very educational show today. And we want to thank you again. So we thank hope you. we want you to come back. So uh, thank you. I should have y'all on my podcast. We Food should, allergy and your kiddo. There we go. We should we should do that. <laughs> we, we're gonna go. We're gonna go to Dr. Hoyt's podcast. Well, we don't have to. Let, let's not wrap. Let's jump thirty more seconds. Tell us about your podcast. Yeah, I'd idea. love to what, hear that. Yeah, what, tell us what's what is the podcast about. I'd so love to hear more. It's called Food Allergy and Your Kiddo, and it's all about food allergy and children. And okay. I I started it when I was on um, maternity leave. I think. Adelaide was eight weeks old when I started the podcast. Wow. I just, I love what I do. I love, I love the knowledge that I've acquired and continue to acquire. And I just want to share it with everybody. And I know that in my, in my small clinic, I, I can't, I can't share it with the world, but I, I mean, I get emails from Tennessee, Georgia, Ohio, like all these places. Sure. So if you want evidence-based practice, proven information about food allergy, foodallergyandyourkiddo.com. So that's great. So we, so, I mean, podcaster, advocate, Nonprofit, private practice, and mom. I Everything. Mean, I mean, can you, can you, can what are you doing in your free time? Right. <laughs> what free time? Is that what, the, what free time? I eat fancy king cakes. Oh, All that's right. good. There, All we right. go. there we go. Well, uh, Dr. Hoyt, thank you very much for coming in. Again, everyone, if you want to contact Dr. Hoyt, you've, you've got the contact information for uh, not only her private practice, for the advocate group, and now you know the name of the podcast. So uh, stick around. Uh, for another episode of Health Law Talk. This has been really fun, Dr. Hoyt. Thank you very, very thank much. Thank you and, uh, and thank you all you listeners. Again, if you want to drop us a line, uh, send us an email, talk to us about episodes that you want to see or hear, please do so. Uh, and again, thank you for listening to Health Law Talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Health Law Talk, presented by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. 
please be sure to subscribe to our channel. Make sure to give us that five-star rating and share with your friends. Shahardi Sherman Williams is providing this podcast as a public service. This podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal advice, nor does this podcast establish an attorney-client relationship. Reference to any specific product or entity does not count as an endorsement or recommendation by Shahardi Sherman Williams. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance does not imply an endorsement of them or their entity that they represent. Remember, please consult an attorney for your specific legal issues.